Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. All right, today our topic is a topic everybody always wants to need know to more about. How do you have more confidence? Especially when you've stepped outside your comfort zone, taken that job that you don't know everything about, and are now trying to lead a team who actually knows a lot more than you. Confidence is the name of the game, and it's at that point that this lovely thing called feeling like an imposter starts to rear its head. So today's episode is really focused on a different take on confidence rather than the body language pieces of confidence that we so often talk about, and those are important. Instead, we want to talk about some mindset issues, and we're going to talk about eight confidence superpowers, kind of understanding what yours is, how you use it, how you lean into it, and how you feel more confident from it as a result. So my guest today is Lisa Sun. And Elisa is a noted fashion entrepreneur, founder of a lifestyle brand called Gravitas. She was formerly at McKinsey and Company as a consultant, and her in her first review at McKinsey, she was told that she, quote, lacked Gravitas. This feedback kicked off a two-decade-long exploration of the concept of confidence and what it meant to truly know your own value. And the result of this exploration, complemented by a decade of her work as consultant and a thousand-person survey of women in, of all shapes and sizes and ages and so on, resulted in the book we're talking about today, Gravitas, The Eight Strengths That Redefine Confidence. All right, Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Wanda. This is such a, I, I, what a joy to spend this time with you. I feel the same. I feel the same. I'm super excited about this. And I have to tell you, how many people have been told that they didn't have enough gravitas, executive presence, can't hold the room. You got to know how to own the room. That's the one I was told. You got to learn how to take over the room. Okay, great. So what? I, apart from your own personal journey, why did you decide to write a book? Well, I and, and you're right, Wanda. When I was 22, I was told that I didn't have any gravitas. And so many of us have been given that feedback and it's ambiguous and it's anxiety inducing. And I spent 11 years at McKinsey and the last 10 years running a fashion company. And what I found was from boardrooms to dressing rooms, everyone struggles with this idea of confidence. And when I thought about writing a book, I thought we should write a book one, because I do think we have a new fresh take on it that we can reset the standard and shift the paradigm on how we as a society talk about it. And secondly, there are only so many dressing rooms and boardrooms I can get to. So I wanted to be able to distill all of our learnings, insights, our playbook for confidence into the form of a book so that anyone could have the chance to access it. Okay. I love it. I love it. I love it. I think it's such an important topic. Um, before we launch into, yes, women tend to believe that this lacking gravitas and lacking confidence is unique to them. In my experience, men struggle with it just as much, particularly when they get themselves out of the comfort zone. They know they don't know everything they wish they think they could know. But what's your experience? Did you write this just for women or is it is it true across the board? 
I, I wrote this book primarily for women because I do think that's where there was a very big gap around confidence. And that's what the most amount of ink has not been spilled. Frankly, if you read most books about confidence, there are not as many written by women or even women of color, which I am. And so I really felt strongly about being there for them. However, the greatest compliment I could have received in the last two weeks is my former mentor from McKinsey, one of my favorite men on the planet, posted an Amazon review that says, I think every man needs to read this book because we have been talking about confidence in a way that is very male. And if you want to mentor, lead, elevate, uplift women in your organization, in your community, you need to change your own vocabulary around it. So he's actually encouraging every male partner at McKinsey to buy a copy of the book because he said it reset my view of it. And I think it could really help us in mentoring and creating spaces for women to succeed. I can't tell. I mean, I have given talks on executive presence, the bigger, the big, big topic, not just confidence, but and develop my own theory about what are the component parts, I think, that go in to create this magical thing called executive presence. And largely because I kept dealing with people, particularly women who'd gotten the feedback that they were lacking executive presence and they're ready to throw their hands up going, I have no idea what that means and how am I supposed to do something about it? And it does start to feel like typical quote unquote, male speak in the organization as a way of holding women back. At least that's how they were feeling at the time. After giving those talks, I can't tell you how many men come up to me afterwards and say, me too, Wanda. Can I have a coaching session with you? I need help. I'm struggling. I know it's bad. I know it's bad, but I need help too. And I've asked audiences of men, how many of you have a crisis of confidence? Every hand will in the room go up. Well, confidence is a universal concept, right? So uh, one of the things I talk about a lot is we are born fully self-confident. If you've ever been around a five-year-old and you ask a five-year-old what they're the best at in the world, they'll tell you right away, I'm the best at soccer, I'm the best at hugs, I'm the best at everything. And in our adolescence, in my book, in chapter two, I talk about the six forces that hold us back from confidence. And so all of us are prone to these six forces, everything from deficit mindset, we see our weaknesses over our potential, setback spiral, when setbacks and disappointments happen, do we expound that to every part of our life and beat ourselves up? Or do we think about learnings versus regret? Everyone, doesn't matter if you're woman, man, non-binary, these six forces are very real and they pop up in our adolescence. They form the basis of an inner critic that never goes away. And so I do think you're right in that confidence, executive presence, it's a universal concept that applies to everyone in terms of our anxiety over it, our appetite to try and address it, because we've all been through adolescence. We've all been to that 12 to 16-year-old age range where we have self-awareness, self-doubt, and comparison and envy for the first time in our lives. Yeah, yeah, I think we all do know it. All right, you you dropped two things that I want to pursue. One is the notion of inner critic. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> you dropped two things in that that I want to pick on. One is the notion of the inner critic, but I want to go back before we do that. I want to talk about these six forces you said. Our weaknesses loom in our mind greater than our strengths. We take setbacks and spiral that as to everything is horrible. What are the other four forces? Well, the other four forces are shrinking effect, 
where we diminish our own accomplishments in light of a benchmark or others. The easiest example that I use of that is uh, the Hewlett Packard study where men will apply for a job if they're only 60% qualified, but women will only apply if they're 100% qualified, right? So there's this idea of diminishing our own accomplishments in light of others. Satisfaction conundrum, when we tie our self-worth or happiness to external markers of success. The easiest example of that is a lot of women I dress will tell me that they'll be happy when they lose 10 pounds, or I will only know I'm successful if I get this promotion. And it drives a huge amount of insecurity. It's what perfectionist peril is, right? You're always trying to reach a standard that is quite impossible and you beat yourself up in the process. The fifth one is the superhero facade. This is where you pretend and you act like every part of your life is going well when you're deeply insecure. And I do think, you know, this is where we get into questions around the most secure people are vulnerable. I love the Shonda Rhimes quote, if I'm succeeding in one part of my life, you better know that I'm failing in another part. And that takes real confidence to be able to say something like that. Uh, And I do think posting on social media to try to convince everyone everything's all right is actually sometimes a sign of insecurity. And the sixth is systemic bias, where there are asymmetrical systems of power at work. And so I do love Rachika Tulshin and Jodianne Burry's work on the myth of imposter syndrome. Maybe you shouldn't feel like an imposter. Maybe the system wasn't built for you or by you. And so stop beating yourself up if you don't reach a particular milestone. I certainly faced that. I spent 11 years at a firm where it took me 11 years to get to the same level of success as my male colleagues in six to seven years. So it took me almost twice as long to get to the same place. I made myself feel very bad about that. But now, after a decade of not being there, I can also say quite confidently, a portion of that was the system couldn't understand what to do with an Asian woman, Asian American woman in the boardroom. I was one of the few, the only. And so I feel a little bit better about that experience. I wish I could go back to myself in my 30s and say, you know what? You're pretty awesome. You really contribute to this world. And it's okay because maybe that system wasn't the right fit for you. And so those are the six forces. We feel them in varying degrees, some more than others. But I like having a language through which you can process and describe insecurity and fear. Oh, it's not that I'm afraid of that. I'm feeling satisfaction conundrum. Guess what? If I don't make a bestseller list, if I don't, I still made a difference in this world today. Great. I can feel differently about that. Right. That the satisfaction conundrum, I like having that label for it, is one of the biggest problems I see that make people unhappy with their lives because they don't look inward at the growth that they've achieved. They look outward and say, I'm going to feel great if you give me this title or this promotion or this review. But there's a thousand things that are outside of your control. Whereas if you can look inward at the more intrinsic motivators and keep create your own yardstick of where you personally want to grow, you're going to be much happier in life. Plus the notion of focusing on the strengths, not just the weaknesses and so on. You know, and it's it's something that has taken me 43 years to learn. And what I mean by that is I'm raised by a tiger mom. I'm raised, when Amy Chua's book came out, she said, you see, I was right. Someone wrote a book about me. <laughs> well, there's so much greatness in that approach. It is an approach that says you're always looking at the summit and you're never turning around to see how far you've climbed. And that for me is has been a huge learn. I've had a lot of executive coaches that said, If this doesn't happen in your life, you're still incredibly valuable. I love my mother. I dedicated my book to my mother. 
But the tiger mom approach does say, you want to be valedictorian because then we will know we've succeeded as a family, an immigrant family. That's our marker for why we sacrificed, had all this pain. And so, so much of my childhood was tied to these external points of validation. Leaving McKinsey was so hard because when you leave behind the lovely business card and you can sit at a dinner party and say, I'm a junior partner at the firm, all of a sudden being an Asian woman they don't underestimate you when you say you are at McKinsey and Company for those of you for those of your listeners who know that firm. So the last 10 years of being on my own, running a small company, being scrappy, I've had to self-soothe myself without all those external validations. Right. I love that. Um, you want to give a couple of hints. So how do you advise people to deal with the shrinking effect, for example, where you diminish your accomplishments? Well, that is actually, I mean, I I think the one thing that the our book does is it doesn't really try to solve each of these six. What right. it does is say, these six are real, know okay. which ones are impacting you. And from there, you can make a choice to sit in the midst of them and break out of them. Because I always say, how do you hold yourself in the middle of your flaws and still like yourself? How do you hold yourself in high regard in the midst of everything that these six forces are creating in your life? And what the thing that I say is it's a choice and a mindset before it becomes a behavior. So we as a society talk about confidence mostly from a behavioral standpoint, right? And I think that, not what you do, Wanda, but I'm just saying in general, it's be more confident, be assertive, speak up. When you really look at the word confidence in a dictionary, it's an understanding and appreciation of your own abilities. Something that's quite hard to do when these six forces are working on you. So to be able to break out of that, you've got to say, you know what? I've got to think differently about myself overall. I have to know what I bring to the table. I have to believe what I bring to the table. And then we can do the hard work of turning that inner belief into an outward expression. So these six forces, it's not like one by one, we can break them down. It's more that we need to acknowledge that they exist. Exist. And just be honest with myself about, yeah, I've got six of them or three of them or two of them or whatever, and they loom kind of large. All right. You said in a really important thing there that we have to come to a place where we understand and appreciate our own ability and what we're bringing to the table. It is my number one, number one, number one, number one mandatory to take yourself out of your comfort zone and survive, thrive. That is until you understand what you're bringing, you're going to forever feel like there's a hundred things I don't know. And if you can say, no, I'm bringing this skill, this capability, this understanding, and then you can say, I can rely on other people. It's the antidote, but you got to get clear about that. And some days it's elusive. All right. I want to go back. You said inner critic. And I happen to know from talking to you before that you have a unique approach to dealing with this inner critic. So that notion of that that voice that sits in your head or sometimes that character that sits on your shoulder or sometimes it's your mother's voice saying you're not good enough in some Uh version. So tell us about how you have come to deal with this inner critic. Well, I always say you can't wave it away. It's performative if you wave it away. How many times have you heard someone say, well, I wouldn't have given you that assignment if I didn't believe in you. Why are you doubting yourself, right? We usually wave it away. And I think we need to have a better conversation with our inner critic. 
So I always say, first of all, give your inner critic a name. It's like Harry Potter. Once you can say Voldemort out loud, you're less afraid of him. And so uh, mine is named Fred. I won't give you the backstory today, Wanda, of why it's named Fred, but give it a name because it takes away its power. And then you can have conversations with it. What's the worst that could happen? Let the inner critic have a voice. And what you'll realize is the thoughts are harsh, pessimistic, backwards looking. And then, and I know we're going to get into the approach around superpowers, then you can say, what's the best case scenario based on my strengths, based on the megaphone of my values and attributes and my capabilities? What's the best case here? And you learn that you can drown out that worst case scenario because you now have articulated the best case. The most likely is closer to the best case because you're in control. Okay. I like that, Fred. Really Wanda, like what's yours? I'm curious. I don't know that I have a name. I clearly have an inner critic. I clearly have an, and and I am constantly telling it to hush, like not now. Is my ba- watchword with my inner critic. I will talk to you later, but not now. <laughs> right now, oh. I've got to go do something or perform or whatever. I like to talk to it because I'll give you an example. Yesterday, we faced an issue on production. I said, worst case scenario, go ahead, Fred. It's like, okay, packages will be two weeks late. Pat, you know, And I'll say best case is we're going to call the warehouse. We're going to like see what the possibilities and we're going to communicate to people when they're going to get their orders. And, and what I realized is I let the worst case scenario spin out because I like to know in my own mind, what is the doomsday scenario? And then I feel in control over what's really possible. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't named my inner critic yet, but I need to try that tactic. Got to come up with a good name and a good backstory behind that inner critic. Okay. So we have these forces developed in adolescence, largely when we first begin to compare ourselves to peers. Some of those messages are laid down by parents or family of origin, whatever that looks like for different individuals who are pushing us to do more, achieve more for good cause, but they leave, we internalize that as feeling inadequate in some way. All right, now, and we have this lovely definition of confidence that I want to re- repeat, which is understanding and appreciating your own ability. So with that in mind, let's pivot and talk about the eight superpowers. Um, And, uh, you know, I want to take each one of them kind of in turn and talk about what it is and get a little story and a little example and talk about how we give air to that superpower. Well, and first of all, I'll step back and just say we developed it because uh, I dress thousands of women a year and I do speak in front of mixed audiences, mixed gender audiences. And what I realized is the dressing room is an analogy for your life. Every person who comes in a dressing room hates themselves. They bring all six forces. And I'll tell you, systemic bias is basically having a mirror in there that makes you feel terrible about yourself. That's an example. We don't allow mirrors in the dressing room. And what I started to do is before I could actually dress a woman, I would change her mindset. So I'd say, I'm really good at what I do. I'm a dress whisperer. Don't worry. I will get you out of here in 20 minutes. But for five minutes, what are you the proudest of in the last year? What are you the best at in the world? If your best friend was standing here, what would they tell me about you? And she starts to laugh. She tells stories. And I realized that we could change her mindset. Inevitably, she'd come out of the dressing room and say, I don't know what you did. You really are a dress dress whisperer. 
I said, no, we had to actually set up the right mind frame before we could go do the work. But the question that women struggled the most with was what's your superpower? What are you best at? They really didn't know how to answer it. Or when they answered it, they diminished the answer. So for example, they would say, oh, I just get things done on time. It's so boring. And I would say, oh my gosh, I don't do that very well. I celebrate you. Should really, is that a superpower? Getting things done? And so as a result of that, we launched a thousand person quantitative study and 32 focus groups to understand the results. We identified eight types of superpowers. They underpin your self-belief. They answer my question of what are you the best at in the world? By the way, you take a quiz, myconfidencelanguage.com, which I know you've taken, Wanda. My mom has all eight, not surprising. She's like, I'm all of these. 2% of people do have all eight, but most people have two to four of them. And when you see them, you can't unsee them because all of a sudden you now have the language to answer my question. What are you the best at in the world? It's very empowering. For some people, it's surprising when they have six or seven. They said, am I really this powerful? I'm like, yes, this is a self-affirming inventory. It's what you ask your clients to do, Wanda, like know your abilities. But I felt strongly about creating this vocabulary. Uh, Let me give you the eight because that was your original question. But I wanted to give you that flavor. That's good. That's good. Uh, So leading, this is you're in charge, you set direction, you inspire followership. It's a very common form of confidence, very often talked about. The second one is performing, which we're doing right now, extroversion, charisma, holding the center stage, being able to persuade others. And that is also a very common form of confidence. Those two represent less than 20% of our data set. And I really think it's important that we talk about that because does that mean 80% of us don't deserve to feel good about ourselves because we don't perform to society's version of confidence? The next four, 74% of people had at least one of these. Achieving, you get things done. You get it done on time. You have a performance mindset. You don't accept failure. You never give up. I always say athletes have have achieving. The next one is knowing, which is you are the most well-researched, thoughtful person in the room. When you build Ikea furniture, there are no screws left at the end. The best example I can give you of these two qualities are the women from Hidden Figures. These Black women at NASA did not fit society's prototype of confidence, but why did they deserve to be in the room? Why did they feel good about themselves? They were the smartest and highest achieving people to send a man into space. It's a quieter form of confidence. It's not as outspoken, but equally as valuable. The next two, giving and believing. You support others in their journey. You give generously and believing. You're optimistic. You operate with positive intent. You know when to let things go. You believe in people's potential. The best example of this in modern culture is Ted Lasso. If you're a Ted Lasso fan, he did not come across as leading and performing. He did not have a command and control style to coaching. He had a poster that said, believe over his office. And he said, I'm not here to win or lose. I'm here to make these men the best possible men they can be. I operate with positivity and optimism. And that is a very powerful route to confidence. He was also constantly underestimated, right? Everyone underestimated him because he didn't fit that prototype of classic coaching. The next two are creating and self-sustaining. Creating, a lot of immigrants have this or entrepreneurs or artists. 
It's your ability to believe in ideas and then will those ideas into existence. You're resourceful. You can create something from nothing. You believe it to see it. You're not a see it to believe it person. Self-sustaining. This is one that the fewest number of people have. I like myself. I don't need to impress you. I know my market value. And it's the quality most needed to overcome criticism or ask for a raise. And this one I love. I always describe this as eight-year-olds and 80-year-olds have it. My mother has it and a small child has it, which is just this belief that I deserve to be here. There's no sense of envy or comparison in that quality of confidence. Wow, that's a lot. So just to hit the eight, just to make sure people heard them all, there's leading. So directing, creating followership, getting people behind you. That doesn't have to be an ugly form of command and control. It just means to have to be moving it forward. Performance, that's the extroversion, persuasion kind of taking center stage. 20% of the population, less than 20% of those two. Then we have achieving, getting it done. There's no, there's no, no, we're not going to fail. We're going to get done regardless. There's knowing, meaning be deeply grounded in the knowledge, what I might call expertise giving as in supporting and believing in others and seeing the best in others there's believing which is generating the positive energy the optimism we can kind of attitude creating which is someone who can take ideas through to execution and then finally that self-sustaining which is believing that i like myself and that's the part i love that you said that that's the part that gets you successful at understanding criticism accepting not accepting rejecting as well as asking for a raise. I love it. Fabulous, Lisa. Okay, go ahead. I I will say what I love about this is it allows us to double click on the word confidence. And so, for example, if someone says be more confident, I would say, which of these eight do you want me to be? Do you want me to be more self-sustaining and treat feedback as a gift and not a stick of dynamite? Do you want me to be more performing and more outspoken, right? We can actually start to change the language around confidence because confidence is through the eyes of the beholder's confidence language. So oftentimes when people tell you to be more confident, they have something in their head that they can't quite articulate. And so that's why I felt strongly this, this language is not just for you to take an inventory of your strengths, but also if you're interacting with someone else, you can actually be more specific in what you're asking them to do. Yeah. And if I think about, I hadn't done this before, but if I think about what I always say about this thing called executive presence, so it's a, it's a little, to me, confidence is a subset of executive presence. But if I just step back from that and say, if I took your eight in ways, they come pretty close to covering most of the things that I would have said in executive presence. One I might quibble with is that notion we have a concise message. But in some ways, that's part of performing. It is. So it is. It is storytelling. Yeah. Um, how do you uh, inspire others when you persuade? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that idea. I've always believed that if leaders could say, I want you to develop more confidence. And by that, I mean blank. And then also, we could do a much better job. I also think it allows us to elevate frankly, some qualities that have been underestimated or undervalued in our society. So the best example I use is in 2013, when Janet Yellen was nominated to be the first head of the Federal Reserve, first woman head of the Federal Reserve, she was told she didn't have the gravitas. You can Google this, hundreds of articles. And Ezra Klein at the Washington Post said, it's because the pervasive view of gravitas does not stretch to include her. She's soft-spoken. She's collaborative. 
She loves to be able to support other success. Why isn't that gravitas too? Right. Right. And as we see, you know, she's held that position for a long time. Somebody must believe in her. Well, she's the secretary of treasury who got us through the COVID. So exactly, exactly. Right. Fantastic. Okay. Lisa, this is a perfect place to take a break. What I want to do when we come back is to dig a little bit deeper into each of these to get a couple more, you know, one more example. So we see it in action and talk about how do I begin to elevate that level of confidence in myself. So get more tactical about it. So my guest today is Lisa Sun. Um, her fashion business, I should say, is Gravitas. The book is called Gravitas, The Eight Strengths That Redefine Confidence. And if you want to take this test, Lisa, where's the website again? Myconfidencelanguage.com. Perfect. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum. Helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Lisa Sun. The book we're talking about is Gravitas, The Eight Strengths That Redefine Confidence. You know, I think that is a great title, but I think what we're really saying, or what you've said several times, Lisa, is that this is a language. This is a new vocabulary that helps us understand what is it our superpower is about. What are we really good at doing that lets us succeed 
and take credit for that success and feel good about our abilities, which is ultimately what confidence is about. So that it's not a fake it, it's a genuine, all right? And reminder that that inner critic comes from several forces that we identify with. I just want to repeat those because I think they're so important. Our weaknesses loom large or our setbacks loom large. We sort of diminish our compliments, the shrinking effect. Um, We have the satisfaction conundrum that our success is externally defined rather than internally defined. We pretend that we're superheroes everywhere so that everything is perfect, not we have we operate in systems that are often biased systemically against our greatest strengths or against our personality um and that this is really about understanding what we bring to the table and then the force the eight confidence languages are leading performing achieving knowing giving and believing creating and self-sustaining okay all right lisa so what i want to do is take each of those eight and i kind of want to get a little bit story about someone there. And then I want to know if that's the one I think I need to develop. How do I begin to elevate that? You want to just stop sort of the top and go straight down? Uh, yes, I, I can do that. And I, I know the nice thing about this language is that we can be more than one. And so we're oftentimes a mix of these. Uh, what I find often is that leading is one that really, if you do have this quality, you we tested 30 situations in life and how capable or confident people are. There is an interesting thing about leading in that if you do score highly on that one, you're capable and confident in almost everything. And that one really surprised us. So leading is so much ink has been spilled on this one, but this is truly around inspiring followership, setting strategic direction, um, setting really vision, but then concrete ways in which you're going to get to that vision and being able to uh, corral the troops, level up, persuade, take risks, uh, and be in the service of a bigger vision and mission. This one, I think there are so many more books better, better written than mine on this particular topic, but we do have to acknowledge that it does increase capability and confidence across the board. Okay. All right. So if I think I'm not so strong in that, what's your advice for how to begin to develop that capability? Yes. And in my book, uh, actually, each of these qualities, we lay out the benefits of having it, the shadow sides. By the way, I do want to say every superpower has a dark side. And then if you don't have it, how to get it and why do you want it? I don't think we need to be all eight. It's not like Pokemon, collect them all, even though my mom has all eight. I love her, but we don't need all of them equally all the time. So for leading, I always tell people, can you do the North Star exercise? And I believe the greatest leaders in the world are incredibly good at articulating where they're taking us. And the clearer that direction is. So it can be as small as in my personal life in five years, here are the headlines of my life and I can take charge of that. Mm-hmm. On top of that, how do you grow mentor and lead followers? Because you can't be a leader without a follower. And one of my favorite videos on YouTube, if you haven't seen it, it's called uh, Lessons from a Dancing Guy. And it always it's called First Follower Lessons from a Dancing Guy. And it's this man in a park who starts dancing. And then his friend gets up to join him. And that friend waves over other people. And uh, soon you see the entire park dancing. And the lesson is, 
it was the leader who stood up and took the risk, but it was the first follower that told everyone it was okay. So I do think that's part of it as well as how do you cultivate and build followership? Okay. So that would say to me that if I want to develop this leading quality, A, I've got to be really clear in my own sense of the direction to be able to articulate that in a way that is going to be compelling. But I also need to look for those first few followers. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to get along behind without followers. (laughs) But it's the first few, as you rightly said, who help then persuade others to join. And then there's sort of a groundswell of movement. But until you get the first couple and it feels less daunting as opposed to how do I get a thousand people to follow me? How do I get three in the organization to follow me? And then how do those three help me elevate that to 50 and Mm -hmm. on to a thousand? Okay. I like that one. All right. What about performing? Uh, performing again, I think a lot of ink has been spilled on this one as well. So, uh, performing for me is how do you, uh, relate to others? And what I think the people who are best at this form of extroversion, they know how to read an audience. They actually are incredibly good at engaging an audience. So it doesn't have to be, I'm giving the speech or I'm giving the toast, but it could be how you interact with others, how do you get to know their story, the great question, and is around building the energy between two people. It has been historically, I think, described as charisma and charm. But I think this is really about how do you sit inside a moment and get energy out of interactions with others? It's what you're saying is ultimately, how do I tune into where other people are? And, and then questions <laughs> yeah. and get them to tell me, because once I know that, then I know what words to say and how to say it in a way that's going to reach and them. And this, the greatest salespeople in the world are very good at that. They're not just pitching you an idea, but they're trying to understand your needs, trying to understand what oh. they're, what they're going to be solving when they're selling you something. And then they're communicating the idea or the plan. Right. Yes. Absolutely. I recognize that. And yes, it's probably easier if you're an extroverted personality, but I know tons of introverted personalities, deeply introverts, who've gotten really good at this quality. It yes, just I, takes energy. It takes effort and, and it takes energy. And unfortunately, we live in a society that values this one superpower, right? And 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 so a lot of folks who don't naturally have it, when they've read our book, they've really focused on this chapter in terms of how to build it. Okay. All right. So out of curiosity, what's the shadow side of this one? It's all about me. And I think that's what there's a level of narcissism that comes out when you're when you're performing where you don't read your audience because you like being in the spotlight and center stage. Uh, This is one of my top superpowers. So there's examples of how to course correct that throughout the book. Okay, great. I think that goes hand in hand with the leading one, too. Because it does, to lead, it takes a level of narcissism. What you don't want is that you have to have confidence in yourself, like in your own vision and your own ideas. And if you don't have that, it's hard to do the performing or the leading. But when those get outsized, we have a completely different set of problems. Mm-hmm. All right. So if I want to develop the performing capability, what's the path for that one? Well, there's a lot of exercises on that one. So if you do have to give a speech or a presentation or pitch an idea, we go through in the book, breathing exercises, how to tell your stories. I like that you talk about concise messaging. So we do talk a lot about CLTs, um, just all the different ways in which you can build a story that's compelling. Okay. And when you think of a character that exemplifies this performing, who, who do you think of? 
Well, it's not only one character necessarily. I I do think that anyone who has a public facing persona. So it can be anyone from a TikTok star to someone who you see on television who's delivering the news, right? This is a quality that's written about most often in our society. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So let's go then from there to achieving. Uh, Achieving is really about uh, setting goals, setting targets and meeting or exceeding them. So this is a performance mindset. I do talk about, you know, the example I use on stage is Katniss Everdeen from The Hunger Games, (laughs) because there's a clear survival, uh, survival mode, but athletes, Olympians often score very highly on achieving. Uh, When you think about Uh, setting targets, exceeding and meeting them. I don't have, I know it sounds like I would, I was raised to be an achiever. I was raised to have this quality, but it's not something that I necessarily liked or is natural to me. Uh, All right. So then how are you working on your achieving? Um, I'm actually, the one thing about achieving is rewards and incentives need to be clear. Because if you think about the athlete mindset, it's about winning something. And so I actually give myself rewards and incentives. I say, okay, when we finish this to-do list, I get to go and buy something delicious to eat. I mean, it's so simple, but there is a rewards and incentives mechanism. Most people in corporate America have this quality to a certain extent because there's a sales target. There's something that they've got to meet or something they, uh, a recognition that they want to win, a bonus, a promotion. This is the one most often used. This is a superpower most often used when you're trying to get a promotion. Different than a raise, a promotion. Different promotion, right. And I think about that for some of the best athletes. Um, We talk about the fact that you don't focus on the gold medal necessarily, but you focus on the small goals that get you there. Like Michael Phelps coach has talked about focusing on shaving off a second. Mm-hmm. focusing on improving the turn, focusing on small things that are under your control rather than the gold medal. Practice okay. makes perfect. That's, That's the definition of this one. Yeah. Okay. And so there's this willing to practice, to master in effect. Okay. Let's move on then. Um, knowing. Who's an exemplary <laughs> model of knowing? Well, I talked about the hidden figures women. Figures. Mm-hmm. I do think they're the best example of it. Excuse me, Wanda. I'll start over. Uh, So knowing, I always say, is the hidden figures women because Mm -hmm. they are the smartest, most well-researched person in the room. This is someone who needs all of the available information to make a decision. It's how you can build IKEA furniture. I don't have this quality. So one example I use is if there's a decision you may need to make that's quite important, being able to collect information, do the pros and cons list, set up a clear process and how you're going to take that on is usually how you embody this trait. Um, For example, on my apparel team, this is my entire production team. They are all about knowing. They're about schedules. They are about here are the five pieces of information you need to do the costing sheet. If it were up to me, I would probably just price product based on my feeling. And you really need the data to price a product properly. Right, right. So this is the data-driven folks in the world, right? And what's the shadow side of knowing? You overthink things. You overanalyze. You paralyze yourself with information and are in, unable to make decisions. Okay. And what does one do to get better at it? So each of these superpowers interact with each other. 
a bit. And so I always say, if you're too much knowing, you might need a little bit of the creating superpower. So knowing is I have to see it before I believe it. Creating is I believe it before I can see it. And so one of the things is once you have enough information, it may never be to your satisfaction level. You need to take a leap of faith. Okay. Okay. You have to believe yourself. By the way, one interesting thing about knowing people is that they're very comfortable uh, defending an idea with information and data. What they're not comfortable with is being seen as the expert. And it's a very uncomfortable thing to say, I just don't know enough. How could I possibly be the expert? And I always tell people who score high on knowing, you are the expert. Trust that no one else in the room has done more digging than you have. Why can't you feel good enough about your work to step into the light in that way? Yeah. I've told this story so many times. One senior executive said to me that his tactic on confidence was to look around the room and ask if anybody else knew more than he did. And I mm. love that equalizer of more, meaning somebody can know a lot, but do they know more than I do? And it doesn't mean I have to know everything or the most. It just means I know at least as much as everybody else. It's kind of a nice equalizing for this one. All right. So that's knowing. And you said it's tied hand in hand with creating. So give us your model for creating. Yeah. So creating is all about uh, white space opportunities. So I'll give you my example. I, I, I think people of creating are really comfortable being quiet in their minds. So an example is brainwaves. If you're sitting there responding to emails, text messages and whatnot, you've shortened your brain, uh, your brain wavelengths. To be creating, you need long wavelengths. So you give yourself solution space And the example for my own team is I will sit around and think about problems that women want to solve. So for example, if any of your listeners have ever tried to wear a jumpsuit, you have to get completely undressed to go to the bathroom. And so I was sitting there thinking about that one day and I'm like, could we design a jumpsuit that you don't need to get undressed to go to the bathroom? You don't have to fully undress. And we did it. We've created, it's our best selling product, but it was something that didn't exist I believed we could solve it. And I said, let's go will that idea into existence. So people are creating love ideas. They can reimagine the future. They can sit around and think about what's going to happen five to 10 years from now and then put a plan together to get those. It's different than leading. Leading is setting vision, right? This is, we want to be the number one company in this particular space by this year. Creating is, huh, in 10 years, will we be in flying vehicles, right? Will, Will vehicles fly in 10 years? very different in terms of its its approach. And I think that's why artists and entrepreneurs and immigrants, I mean, who picks up from their home country and goes to a place where they don't know anyone and may not speak the language and imagines a better life for themselves. Immigrants are the best example of this. Okay. Do you have a hero figure in creating? In creating my mom, I would say my parents, my parents in 1974, left Kaohsiung, Taiwan, which no one leaves Kaohsiung. It's a smaller town than Taipei and came to the U.S. college educated. My mom worked on a hamburger truck. My dad worked on a loading dock and they ended up owning multiple small businesses. That's the best example you can use of creating. Okay. We're going to find our way. We'll make our way. There is a sense. All right. And the shadow side of creating, what's the shadow? Uh, Is you're unrealistic and called a dreamer and not practical at times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. And so how do we develop this? 
especially since it's so tightly tied to knowing? How can we increase the creating side? It's not necessarily tied to knowing. It's more that it's a quality that if you overthink something, you might need to pull on this superpower. Um, creating, because some of some of the creators that I know, people who embody this trait are, I'm not high on knowing, right? I just sort of like, let's go with it. Let's go, let's go here and try to create this. Um, the thing about creating is most people have it in their younger years, in their 25 to 35 years. We, we, in our survey data, we find that they see a lot of runway and possibility. And what happens between the ages of 35 and 55, this quality plummets in terms of its percentage in our data set, because I think we start to have comfort zones. We start not to think about big ideas. We might be taking care of everyone and everything but ourselves. And it pops back up after the age of 55. Almost half of our data set after the age of 55, all of a sudden has creating. And we went and did a focus groups with, with women over the age of 55 about this. And they said, well, I have time, talent, and treasure. I actually want to rethink what I'm going to do with this next chapter of my life. I have possibility again, because I have my time back. I may have raised kids or I may have climbed the ladder and been in the same job for 20 years or lots of things. And I have some resources. I have network. I may have access to capital, right? My The average age of successful entrepreneur is 45. And okay. so what I love about that is sitting back and thinking about possibility again. That's really the defining quality of it is you see possibility and you have the ability to will that into existence. Okay. And that's not you alone. Again, it's being able to tap the network, find the resources. And so I would imagine sometimes the leading part could help you get to this creating side. If you want to, for example, start a business, right? So we talk about if you want to start a business, you need leading, performing, creating, and self-sustaining. Those are the four qualities you most need. And they all interact together in some way. Very cool. Leading, performing, creating, and self-sustaining. All right. So let's go to believing. You said Ted Lasso for sure. Yeah. So Ted Lasso is the best embodiment of believing. Um, it's about seeing positive intent. The example I usually, I wrote about in the book is uh, I love the David Foster Wallace uh, speech at Kenyon College about two fish. I, I, it, it's a fishbowl and there are two young fish and there's an older fish and the older fish as in the morning says good morning boys how's the water today and the little fishies go what's water and it's because to be giving and believing i'll talk about these two together you have to be able to have empathy for someone else you have to see positive intent in someone else's story you have to see the water and in this particular speech, which I love, David Foster Wallace says, anytime you're annoyed with the checkout lady, why don't you take a moment and think maybe she's battling cancer? Maybe she can't pay her mortgage this month. Maybe there's a reason why. And if you get outside of yourself and sit inside someone else's story, you might act differently. You might see a positive in someone else. And I think when you operate from positive intent, you can give, you can support others' success, it's also the quality when someone gets fired from their job. We, in our data set, saw that believing was an important quality because you have to say, oh, this is in service of something bigger. I lost this job because there's another job that's better fit for me. Or there was a reason why I had this setback or this failure. And it's the belief that you can continue on. Okay. All right. I like that one. All right. Let's talk about the last one, sustaining. 
self-sustaining. Yes. Sounds like the hardest one for most people to get around. I mean, the the immense amount of work that self-love requires is embodied in this one. So really, ultimately, this entire approach we're talking about, about seeing your own superpowers and then figure out which ones you want for what situations. Ultimately, we're all trying to get to self-sustaining, which is I don't need to impress you. I like myself. I know my value. I deserve the seat at the table. It can border on arrogance. So I always tell people, you know, that's the shadow side is I don't care what you think. But one of the things about self-sustaining is about taking an inventory of your capabilities, something that most people aren't able to do. And when you take a moment and you document why you got this job or why did you get that promotion? I find people's anxiety levels go even higher when they're given a promotion because they're sort of said, oh, did I really deserve it? I'm like, they did not make a hiring mistake. I don't think your company didn't do this for the right reasons. And so the exercise I talk about is take a peak performance moment in your life and deconstruct it. It's like that Pixar movie Inside Out. It's a core memory. So take something you're really proud of, deconstruct it, and think about which superpowers got you there. Because you've already hit a marker of success in your own life, which means the reserves of power are already within you. And when you replay a peak performance exercise through a lens of strengths, you start to believe in yourself. You start to believe I could do that again. I've already done it. I There's nothing to hold me back from doing it again. Someone on my team used to say, because you know I'm an entrepreneur, we have to make payroll, we have to, you know all these things. And I would always get stressed on the last month of the last week of the month. And she would say, "We've been here before. Why wouldn't we get through it again? Whatever you did the last time we got through this, it might be different this time, but I believe we're going to do it again." And it's such a great mechanism when you're like, yes, you're right. Every week, every last week of the month, we're always here. And somehow I figure it out. Okay, let's keep going. Okay, very good. I love that. So peak performance, this is such a valuable exercise too. And especially now, part of the problem with doing that peak performance and deconstruct it is you don't have the language to use to say, what were my superpowers? And the brilliance of the work you've done here, Lisa, is to give us a starting point for those languages, the eight. But I can imagine that people might say, yeah, I'm going to use a different word to describe achieving for me, because the way I did achieving had to do with a tight focus on deadlines and goals and et cetera. So you you turn it into yourself, but it gives you a bucket to begin with. Yes. And actually, Wanda, that's the exercise I do with my workshops is I have people look at their quiz results and we actually have an exercise called in your own words. And we have people on big post-it notes, take their confidence language and rewrite it in their own words and present it to each other because then it starts to become real and it feels more authentic to you. Like Lisa, I read the achieving section of your book and this is what I took away from it. This is how it applies and how I describe myself, introduce myself, advocate for myself. Right. I love that, Lisa. What a great set of tools. And more importantly, as you started at the beginning, a set of language to say, where are my superpowers? Which of those superpowers is really driving my sense of confidence? And which one, maybe two superpowers would I like to lean into and get a little bit better at? Not because I'm trying to be perfect in all of them, but I can elevate a little bit of my confidence. I love the story, Lisa. If you want to take the um, the quiz for yourself, go to myconfidencelanguage.com. 
My guest today is Lisa Sun, and the book is Gravitas, The Eight Strengths That Redefine Confidence. If people want to reach out to you, Lisa, where should they go? I'm available on LinkedIn, Lisa Sun Gravitas, as well as on Instagram and, and X, as well as Facebook at Lisa L. Sun. Perfect. Lisa, thanks for being a guest today. What a great conversation. Thank you, Wanda. And join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.